Are you a mum looking for some parenting inspiration, tips and advice, stories on the ups and downs we face in our lives as parents, some humour and a little bit of fun? Then you may have just found what you're looking for. Hi and welcome to the Parenting in the Thick of It show. I'm your host Louise Clark, a certified parent coach known to many as your parenting partner. As a mum to three teenagers, you can bet I've probably been there, done that and heard it all. Trust me, there'll be few things that I haven't experienced firsthand. I created this podcast because I just love to help mums like you find ways to navigate life in the thick of it and find a way out of it. Hi and welcome to the show. A couple of months ago, I recorded episode number 211 titled helicopter or parachute parent, which was sparked by this quote. I think that instead of helicoptering our kids, we should be strapping some parachutes on their backs made out of things like common sense, kindness and courage. Then I think we should teach them to jump. It's been one of my most downloaded episodes. So what better way to give you more of what you want than to interview the author of the quote? Today, I have Julie Lithcott-Hames joining me on the show. Welcome, Julie. Louise, I don't even remember ever saying that or writing it down, but I love that I did. You don't? It's such an awesome quote. and It is awesome. And that episode has gone through the roof. So um, uh, thank, oh. you for, thank you for the quote. Absolutely. Um, Thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. Julie Lithcott-Hames, Roots for Humans. Humans need agency in order to make their way forward. Julie is deeply interested in what impedes us. She is the New York Times best-selling author of How to Raise an Adult, an anti-helicopter parenting manifesto which gave rise to one of the top TED Talks of 2016, which now has over 4 million views. Her second book is the critically acclaimed and award-winning prose poetry memoir, Real American which illustrates her experience with racism and her journey towards self-acceptance. A third book on how to be an adult for young adults is forthcoming. Julie is a former corporate lawyer and Stanford Dean, and she holds a BA from Stanford, a JD from Harvard, and an MFA in writing from the California College of Arts. She lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with her partner of over 30 years, their two teenagers and her mother. Julie, thank you so much for being with us today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Louise. Thank you. I was fortunate to hear Julie present to a live audience a couple of years ago in Los Angeles and was wowed by her honesty, vulnerability, humor and authenticity. I have so many questions that I'd love to ask you today, but why don't you start by sharing with the listeners what it was that sparked this journey and and the writing of your first book? how to raise an adult. Yeah. So I was a dean at Stanford University, dean of freshmen, which meant my job was to really care about my freshmen, the first year students, to be interested in uh, their transition into the place and making their way through the various pathways and opportunities and experiences we offer and to take an interest in how they were doing and uh, to try to remove obstacles from their path, to help them remove obstacles from their own path. And over the years in that role, which I held from 2002 to 2012, I grew increasingly concerned because 
more and more students every year seem to still be on a leash held by their parents, mm. by which I mean parents were closely attending their every move or handling things for them, such as uh, registering them for class, talking, trying to talk with professors about grades, trying to get involved if there was a roommate dispute, um, basically parents behaving as if their young adults didn't have any skills and maybe the young adult didn't have those skills because the parents had always handled those things in their equivalent form back in high school. And I grew concerned because I could see that they lacked agency in their own life. And I thought, why are they allowing this? Why don't they hunger for their own independence? What's to become of them if they don't? And really what's to become of us all as a society if this next generation uh, doesn't want to take up the, the mantle of of leadership, doesn't want to become adults? Uh, what if they're content to forever be hand handled and managed like ch children? Um, so that was my concern professionally. And I would talk about it. I gave speeches on my campus every year at orientation. I would try to encourage the parents to let go. And, and I was doing this for a number of years. And how was that received? How was that received from the parents? You know, when, when you were you were making the possibly making those suggestions and highlighting your concerns? Um, you know, they were, um, let me see. You know, I, I think they would sort of giggle and, um, you know, be, be slightly um, embarrassed a bit if I pointed out examples that they could resonate with. Um, you know, I, I think they were sheepish. They mm -hmm. were, um, you know, I, I didn't really confront it directly. Mm -hmm. I guess the reason I'm struggling is I never sat down with a parent who was doing this mm -hmm. and told them what I thought about it. Yeah. So it was more that I was addressing a group of 2000 parents. Right. And so it was never a one-on-one, -on -one, um, uh, you know, occasionally people would come up to me afterward and say, you're, you're giving examples that sound a lot like me. I'm going to take your advice to heart, but it really wasn't directed at anyone specifically. So I didn't have any uncomfortable encounters. Right. Yeah. But, but you know, the, the that on the one hand, I'm 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 having these conversations in my work life, really um, really concerned about what's happening uh, to the young adults on my campus and trying to do something about it. At the same time, I was raising my own kids here in Silicon Valley, and after about seven years of railing against overparenting and writing an op-ed and giving speeches and all of this, I came home for dinner one night, sat down next to my ten-year-old, and leaned over his plate and began cutting his meat. And that was my aha moment, my crushing, mortifying realization that, mm -hmm. oh, wait a minute, you can't let go of an 18-year-old in college or university if you've been cutting the meat of a 10-year-old. And that's when, that night, I realized I am becoming the parent I'm criticizing on my campus. Right. Yeah. And it really motivated me to figure out why we do this and, and how we can stop it, because I could see that I was I was building a dependency between and, and, in my between my kid and me that um wasn't going to go away and how was i going to let go of him when he went off to university mm -hmm. it's so easy to to get caught in that you know dare i say trap but you know when the kids are younger we have to do so much for them but unless we're really aware and, and attuned to letting go of the things that they can do for themselves we end up overdoing for them and doing things that they're more than capable of doing for themselves. And I actually had exactly the same sort of thing just arise 
last week where I was about to make a phone call on behalf of my 16 year old. And I, and, and I suddenly thought, wait a minute, she's 16. She needs to make this call, not me. Right. So I, 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 you know, I, I but it's, we have to notice it in ourselves. And sometimes we do things and you, I'm like, oh my God, I cannot believe <laughs> I just right. did this for my kid. They're exactly. 18, they're 16, they're 13, whatever it might be. I mean, it might it come, come down to your four-year-old and their shoelaces. Exactly. You it know, does. Never do That's for a child. Point. Yeah. What they can do already for themselves or what they can almost do. Yeah. This is, I'm now quoting Madeline Levine, who's written a couple of wonderful books, The Price of Privilege and Teach Your Children Well. She's a psychologist here in my neck of the woods. And she says, don't do what they can do. Don't do what they can almost do. And don't do for them what you just need in your ego. Yes, yes, absolutely. And what they can almost do is where they learn. And I tell parents, look, the minute they learn to walk, they're walking away from us. Mm -hmm. And we're not supposed to be upset by that or terrified we're supposed to be delighted mm-hmm. we're supposed to keep them from walking into traffic or off of a cliff but short of those truly life or death uh, choices that they may be making where we are supposed to step in and protect them we are, we're supposed to let them have the experiences that are going to teach them the various skills they need to know so they get stronger mm-hmm. and more capable and confident yeah and ultimately can stand on their own two feet and yeah. we completely 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 lost sight of that in a certain milieu in families where we're at you know at least middle class we have some time some money on our hands you know such that we can attend every moment of our kids lives and um this is you know the the irony here is it's a tends to be a problem of affluence yeah well that was madeline levine's book wasn't it the price of privilege which if any of you listening today have not read Please put it on your list. Um, it really is. Uh, it's a. It's an eye opener. It's an aha moment. Um, it reveals a lot of truths about how we are parenting today. And you know, I. It always reminds me of that quote by Rudolf Drakers, who's an Adlerian parenting expert, who said, "Never do for your child what your child can do for themselves, at every age in their development. In their development, because it robs them of the capacity a to fail." B, to try, and, and C, to develop the, the life skills and competencies and th- that they need to be able to become a, a, an adult, right. a fully Absolutely. functioning adult. And I love in your book, you know, you give examples, I think on one of the pages early on, there's examples of what you believe an 18-year-old should, in inverted commas, be capable of. And, you know, yeah. I was reading that list thinking, wow i mean i know of so many of my kids friends who are are not capable of it and it's it's not the kids fault it's they've never been given the opportunity to become capable of it right and that's what kind of breaks my heart nowadays we tend to really criticize the millennial generation for all the things they can't do uh they emerge from a childhood that was overly managed overly attended and they have fewer skills that are considered basic requirements for thriving out in the real world, and we blame them, and it, it just breaks my heart. Um, uh, I'm a I'm a I believe in millennials, and I believe in Gen Z coming behind them, and I think we've not done right by them as parents, and it's time to get our act together. Mm-hmm. If if only out of the very selfish reason that we're going to need for them to be completely competent one day because they'll have to take care of us, but they won't be able to, so we're hooped <laughs> unless unless we stop this. There's, you're, you're so right. Um, so in your book, How to Raise an Adult, 
and break free from the over-parenting trap and prepare your kids for success, it's an amazing read and a must read for parents today. Thank you, Louise. Thank you. And, and I will share the details of it in the podcast notes. But in it, you reveal many of the pitfalls associated with over-parenting. And on page 74, liter- your words stop me in my tracks. Don't worry, I've got them here. So you don't have to quickly I, go I'm to page 74. They were so powerful. You said, we've robbed our kids of the chance to construct and know their own selves. We've mortgaged their childhood in exchange for a future we've imagined, a debt that can never be repaid. Ooh, really? I just got chills. <laughs> well, yeah, so did I. I read it about so four it's times. So true, it's right. It's really yeah. serious. It was the. It was the seriousness of it that really got me. And then I'm like, the exchange for a future we've imagined. And it's so easy for us to imagine our future for our children. And then that imagination becomes real because our thoughts create, you know, our our thoughts create our our, uh, feelings and our feelings create our our actions. Before we know it, we've got our agendas, our expectations, the outcome, and we're driving the kids to our outcomes and future-based goals for them. And, you know, as you say, it's a debt that can never be repaid. Um, What do you think, I mean, this is a a big question, but what do you think is the most incapacitating of the helicoptering traits, of the over-parenting traits? I know there's lots of them. Yeah. So if I may, let me just share what I think are the three types of helicopter parent. Um, There's the overprotective parent who's constantly is just sort of always worried about what could go wrong and so has to know at all times where they are and how they're doing and what they're doing and might be gps tracking them and really keeping them on a short leash there's the fiercely directive parent who's telling the kid what to do with their life you must be a concert pianist you must be a doctor you must you know whatever be like your Um, dad yeah be like your dad um and then there's the concierge who just wants to hold their hand the whole time and make life easier. And um, really regardless of which type, and a, and a parent can be um, uh, exhibiting one, two, or all three types. I myself am not so much overprotective, uh, but I'm very much the concierge with a little bit of the fiercely directive thrown in. Um, yes, I, I am a helicopter parent and I admit to it. Um, but I think the most harmful is the fact that our kids end up feeling um, incompetent because of all this help. Um, I've talked to so many parents whose kids are now um, in some kind of therapeutic program. They're in therapy or they're in a therapeutic boarding school, um, you know, where they're the kind of the chicken that has come home to roost, right? And and the, the kid says to the parent in therapy, look, every time you reminded me of something, every time you nagged me about whether I was doing something, you made me feel that you thought I was incompetent, that unless you reminded me, unless you handled it, unless you had it, that it wouldn't happen, meaning I wasn't capable. And, and that's and really, that's the damage we're doing yeah. to them psychologically. And we're saying to them, I don't trust you. Right. It's like if we do you. their homework like you, for them. You can't be successful yeah. in, the, in grade four. Yeah. You're if not I'm doing be your successful, home- so I'm going to do your homework. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's got to be shattering. I'm not a psychologist. I'm a lawyer turned college dean turned writer, but I've read enough of what the psychologists have to say in this arena 
to know and to just sense intuitively, common sense wise in my own being, you know, that damages a human. Mm-hmm. Humans want to know, look, I, I, I did this. I made this thing. I achieved this goal. You know, I worked hard and this happened. I mean, that's sort of the fundamental of self-efficacy mm-hmm. or agency, you know, mm-hmm. the sense that I know I exist because when I act, there's an outcome as opposed to, well, my parents really helped me with that outcome. Yeah. You know, psychologically, the person wonders, you know, who am I? Am I? Do I exist? Do, you know, do I have any control over my life? Mm-hmm. And if you don't have that sense of agency, um, it can lead you to feel really helpless mm-hmm. and really hopeless. Mm-hmm. And um, that leads to higher rates of anxiety and depression. I mean, now we're just getting at what's really the harm here long term is we are damaging their mental health and it shows. Yeah. And the statistics are alarming. You know, the, the statistics are, they're chilling. They really are. There's something very, very wrong that as many children as they as are, are on medication for start, you know, for starters. And so many of them are, are not just anxious, but they're, they're seeing therapists. They are clinically diagnosed with depression. And these are kids in the prime of their lives. And um, it, it's just, it is, it's, it's shattering. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the book is split into four sections. Um, I want to jump in here and say oh, the yeah. good news is we can fix it, but I don't want to get ahead of us. So but just for listeners, like, don't worry, there's good news coming. We can fix this and it's not even expensive to fix it because the fix is all within our own yeah. selves. Yeah. And, you know, at the beginning yeah. of the, 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 the conversation today, you said that the aha moment to you for you was, oh, my God, I'm cutting my 10 year old's meat. Right. You know, and I just in in flipping that, it's like your ten year old wouldn't feel too good about himself for the fact that he wasn't cutting his own meat. My sixteen year old would have been mortified to have had to pick up the pieces from me making the initial phone call that she knew she could do, should do, and wanted to do. Right. You know, stripping them of the capacity of of That's feeling right. good about something that they've done. Right. Yeah. So we'll we'll get to the the what what we can do. Do you yeah. believe do you believe that what we can do where do you believe it start it, it starts because I know parents listening are like I just want to know what I should do, what I can do. So maybe we could we could veer into that unless there's something else that you feel is fundamental to no. the foundation. No. Absolutely. It starts parents, it starts in our own heads and hearts. Uh, it's a philosophical shift, first of all, which is uh, the appreciation that this child is a separate being handed to us by the universe or God or biology, however you want to think about it. We have got this lovely little human being. We're entrusted with their care and we're supposed to see them through to adulthood when they can fend for themselves. They are not us. They are not a reflection of us. They are not our project. They are not our pet. They are not our trophy proving the worth of our own parenting. They are another human being. And if we can make that psychological shift and really get that, Mm -hmm. that they are separate from us, although we love them fiercely and our job is to look after them for these precious years, you know, that helps us give the, them the proper distance they need in order to be able to try and fail and learn and grow and ultimately thrive. Yeah. Okay. So that's huge. That's in us. Huge. It, yeah. They came. They came. With that. 
Yeah. That's, you know, we can sit down with a therapist, a psychologist, a psychiatrist and work out our own inability to accept that. If, if someone has trouble with that stage, Mm-hmm. Go talk to somebody. Okay, your child, particularly in my community and really around the U.S., I see a lot of times moms who are highly educated have been in the workplace, also have kids. We feel that we have to prove how smart we are, how capable we are, how organized we are, how successful we are through our children. Mm-hmm. Particularly if we've pulled away from being hardcore at work in order to invest in raising a family, we're desperate to show, hey, I have a brain, I can contribute. And, and we end up using our kids as the evidence of our worth. Yeah, and, and I'm not success. letting dads off the hook. Many dads, many, many, many dads are caught up in this as well. But it just speaks to our own unwellness. Mm-hmm. And if we could heal ourselves and love ourselves, regardless of whether our child is performing best in class or the middle of the class or at the bottom of the class, mm-hmm. if we could love ourselves anyway, mm-hmm. um, instead of needing our kids to kind of uh, prove that we're worthwhile, uh, we would go a long way toward stopping the overparenting and allowing our kids to have the lives they deserve. Yeah, it's, so, it's such a, a, a key piece. And I'm really glad you mentioned that because I think so many parents, we, we do, we just, the child is becomes an extension of us. And, right. and therefore, they can't, we, if it goes really far, we, we think there are many me. You know, right. we see them as, well, they're just like me or they're just like their dad. And, you know, to be able to sep- separate that identity is so, so yeah. important. You know, they came through us, but they're not yeah. ours. You know, we That's don't, right. we don't like possess Khalil them. Gibran says, yes. Yes, yeah. Right. You know, we, we, right. don't, we don't possess them. We don't own them. That's and right. they are theirs to shine and we are ours to shine. But if we can only feel bright and shiny from, from anything they've done and we... Right. And if they're not, we take it personally as a as a reflection of us. Yeah, it's a slippery slope. You know, I had a mom reach out to me by email and tell me, uh, sort of confess her learnings on this front, which was so powerful. I told her I was going to mention her in every conversation I had going forward. She's got two kids, two sons, one her biological son and the younger one, an adopted son. And she says, Julie, I love them both fiercely. I adore these boys, young men. But I realize with my biological son, I feel responsible for his outcomes because those genes are half mine. And um, wow. she came to realize this in retrospect, having had to deal with a whole lot of troubles her biological son was having as a result of her overparenting. She said, I realized I felt the need to orchestrate every outcome to make sure to nag and remind and handle and so on, because how he performs in the world is a reflection of me genetically. Whereas with my adopted son, I don't feel responsible for his outcomes because he is, I I adopted him. Those aren't my genes. And she said, I don't love him any less. I adore him just as much. I just root for him. I I advise him when he wants advice. I I love him, you know, as much as, you know, that that's not different. It's just that I'm so closely connected to my biological son's outcomes. And with the adopted son, I can step back and say, look at him go. And I'll step in if he needs me, but otherwise, you know, she's got the healthy distance with her adopted son and too tight a rein on Mm -hmm. her biological son. Mm -hmm. And I thought few of us have that opportunity to really compare, you know, how we're, we're behaving with one child versus the next and the role of genetics versus adoption. And I thought it was so wise and so 
vulnerable of her to share that. And Very. I tell folks, if we could just imagine, you know, it's, it's hard to say, imagine your kid is sort of Isn't, your yep. friend's kid or is adopted, you know, you know, for, for each of us, we might have different reasons to feel so closely attached or to, to give the distance that's healthy, but a little bit of distance is precisely what's needed yeah. because that's how they get to have their own life mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and not feel that their performance or failure, their, their achievement or failure somehow makes us feel sad or makes mm-hmm. us feel unworthy, mm-hmm. right? That's a big burden to put on a child. When a child Huge. looks at you and sees in your eyes this disappointment, like I am I feel worse about myself because you just got a C on a test, you know, that's the, the kid already feels badly they got a C. They don't need to know that now you're devastated, mm-hmm. that it's harmed you. you. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, we, they know us so well, we don't even need to say it. They can see right. it, they can smell it, they just know. Because as That's you right. said, if a child wants an A and they get a C, a C, they're disappointed. Yeah. So how can we support them in that disappointment? The disappointment is a, such a learning and such a gift for them. But if, yeah. if we go in and make them feel even worse about themselves, th- they're not even going to try. They're just going to give up. Right. Uh, so hard. That's. I love that story that you shared with regard to that mum who has that opportunity to to be able to see. And you know, I wonder. Did Did you ask her how does she use that to to det- I say detach from her biological son because I don't mean detach, but you know what I mean. Right. So create the proper distance. Yeah. So yeah. so does does she say something to herself? Does she ima- well she doesn't need to because she's got a, you know the 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 adopted son that she's there's a a biological you know uh, distance that's that's naturally created there. But I know that I I sometimes say to my to to clients I'm working with or even myself what would I do if my son's friend came in now, his mum was away on holiday and he came to me and something had just happened? How would I, how would I deal with this kid versus if it was my own? And, yeah. and, and just that mind shift can help you create the distance. Yeah, you know, this mom was still in the thick of it. She had only just had that aha moment mm-hmm. in um, a, uh, a conversation with a third party. You know, it's like a family therapy conference. Just really heard from her elder son, uh, the biological kid, that um, that he felt that this, this closeness was suffocating him. And um, so she was just coming to terms with it. And I think I was one of the first people she told. So I don't know how she's creating the distance, but I know she wants to, and I mm. think that's probably ninety percent of it. Mm-hmm. You, yeah, you, you feel it's as high as that. That if we can create that distance, we are, we are so much better, better equipped to to meet our children's needs and and get out of the way. You know, we need to get out of our own way for them to yeah. to shine. Okay, maybe I'm exaggerating. Maybe it's more like it's seventy percent. But I think it's huge. Knowing we need to and committing to wanting to is huge. It is then huge. it's just a matter of language, body language, you know, and uh but without knowing but without knowing that that's the problem and without wanting to, we'll no, no amount of coaching us is going to help us get there. You yeah. know, we've we've got to we've got to feel it inside ourselves at the level of heart and spirit. You know, again, this humility, this philosophy, mm-hmm. this, you know, this child is not my possession mm-hmm. and I'm not supposed to act on them. I'm not 
polishing it to make it shine it's going to make itself shine you know it's right? shining already we're actually it's dimming it already. we need yeah. we need to you know take the cloud off it let it shine because it's, mm -hmm. it's got everything it needs to shine they have everything they need you know right. and but it's just we, we we cover their brilliance we cover their natural brilliance mm -hmm. and don't allow it to shine because we veil theirs to to let ourselves shine yeah beautiful you know yeah. oftentimes parents will ask me okay how do I know if I'm part of the problem? And I, I point to three things that people might be doing right now that are telltale signs that they're over-involved. One is a linguistic thing. If you're saying we, when you mean your child, you're too close. We're, uh, we're on, the, on the football team, you know? Oh, yeah. We're on the baseball team. No, you're not. Your child is. Yeah. We, we can't go out tonight because we have a midterm tomorrow. No, you don't. That's your child's midterm tomorrow, you know? So that's just sort of a little linguistic tick that shows you you're too close. Mm -hmm. The second thing is, um, do you always feel the need to argue with uh, their teachers and their coaches, all the adults in their lives? Do, do you have to email them and insist upon something or ask questions or, you know, uh, try to advocate for them? Don't do that. You know, you should be teaching your child to advocate for themselves with respect to authority figures. And the third thing is, are you doing their homework? You know, are you, are you doing more than just giving feedback when they ask? Are you doing, you know, are you out there kind of fixing their math problems? And are you rewriting parts of their essay? Are you outright doing their science project? You know, this is, these are signs that you're way too close and not allowing your kid to lead their own life. Mm -hmm. Those are very, very useful um, things for the, the listeners to, to take on board, because I think it, it is, it's, it's developing a sense of awareness of how we're showing up, what we're doing, our part to play in it. They'll, they'll take their part, they'll take the lead, but how can they if we don't even know we're overleading, doing too much, doing it for them, not giving them right. a chance to do it for themselves. So the awareness is huge. Are there any other um, things that you recommend parents do to try and, and get them out of the, the overdoing? Yeah, um... I have something I call the one week cleanse, which is for those of us who feel, uh, who, who can admit that we're always concerned every single day about their homework. When are they going to do it? Have they started it? Reminding them constantly. How did they do in class today on that test they had in science or math or what have you? If we always need to know what happened academically and be sort of on top of it, I recommend the one week cleanse, which is you go to your kid and say, hey kid, I know I'm always on you about what happened in school today and when are you doing your homework? And I know that that can make you feel that I think you don't care about these things, but I know you do care about these things. So for one week, I'm just gonna try my hardest not to ask at all about any of those things. And then as a parent, you commit to that, do your best and, um, parents tell me there's more laughter in their homes uh, as a result of this experiment because the parent and child now are talking about other things in life mm -hmm. that have all the other things in life that are happening besides the academic transactional aspects of the kid's mm -hmm. life. You're basically seeing your child. You're not just being silent around your kid. I mean, that's not the way to handle it. You're supposed to talk about other things. So you're actually seeing your kid as the per as the person they are instead of as a little academic robot. Mm -hmm. The label, and you're taking an interest in in what interests them, in their day, and their joys, and their sorrows, and their friendships, and their you know you're just there to be an adult who's interested in them, 
And uh, you'd be surprised at what great conversations you can actually have with your child when you've stopped obsessing about school. I love that. And I know you are familiar with Dr. Shafali Sabari's work. That's where I actually met you was at the, as I mentioned earlier, at the Evolve conference. And she often says to parents, don't ask any questions. Don't ask any questions. Just be and and let the, you know, don't ask any questions about them, their day, their schoolwork, the, the test results. Did they make the team? Who scored what? You know, move away from those. And, and she said, even if it means you sit in silence, that silence is a space and it's honoring them as who they are and you who you are. And, and she said, it's a very interesting place to find ourselves because we are so involved in every single yeah. thing they do. It's, d- yeah. it's uncomfortable for us to not yeah. be there. Yeah, that's beautiful. I, I must admit, I'm not as far as Dr. Shafali is in any way, shape or form. I, I don't know if and many of us are. None of us are, <laughs> but, but just to say, so, so if you can't imagine sitting in silence with your kid, like Dr. Shafali um, can and recommends, um, the, the place I go to is to just say, hey, tell me something good about today, about your day today. Um, what's going on in your life? Or just instead of today, what's going on in your life that's good? Um, I've learned to ask this with my own kids. And because they might just say lunch was great today. And you know, mm-hmm. part of me is not really interested in lunch. No, I'm interested in the science test, right? But I've committed not to being obsessed about that. So my daughter starts talking to me about lunch and some silly little thing that happened at lunch among her group of friends. And all of a sudden my teenage daughter is just bubbly and effusive and sharing something that I might not even understand it, you know, but I'm just taking an interest in her. And I've learned to do that with my friends, kids and my kids, friends, when they come over, just, Hey kid, you know, tell me something good that's happening in your life, you know, just Mm -hmm. show an interest. And it's also a way to, to sort of practice that kind of kindness and gratitude. Like, you know, if we help somebody think through, uh, if we help someone elicit from their own brains, a good thing that's happening in their life, mm-hmm. it can help, you know, boost them if they're feeling worried about this and that to help them be reminded of not everything's a disaster, right? Yeah. Not everything's going badly or I'm not sad about everything, right? There are positives. We're mm-hmm. helping model the fact that when you, when you can draw upon those things and summon them to your consciousness, um, you know, you're, you're helping, uh, your your psyche feel yeah. more positively about the self absolutely it's it's so important and i know that you know dr shafali she she often says you know when she starts her talk she says to parents so what do you want your what do you want for your kids what do you really want for your kids and she says you know the two the two answers are always i want my kid to be happy and i want my kid to be successful and in chapter 21 in your book which is section four uh, daring to parent differently I love the reference to happiness. There's a mum there that was uh, now actually I think is a, is a parent, is a coach of some sorts, I remember you, you in, in the book. And she was saying that parents just don't see that having the goal for their child's happiness or success is a burden. And you, yeah. you, you point out it's a dual burden. And, you know, parents I work with, they're like, well, I just want my daughter to be happy. And, you know, this this one mom I remember I was working with, she said, you know, but I want my daughter to be happy. And I said, and your daughter knows that you just want her to be happy. Therefore, she feels she's letting you down, perhaps, if she shows herself to be not happy. 
And it's not possible for us all to be happy all the time. Right. So you know, we put such pressure on them to, you know, they then become addicted to pleasure seeking, as you said in the book, and the parent is addicted to controlling the child's choices and behaviors to create the perfect human being. So if the child's having a good day, mom's having a good day. And if the child's not having a good day, we're in despair. And the kid, right. the kid then can, can perhaps feel bad for being sad or feel bad for having failed something because they know, well, mom just wants me to be happy. So I'd better not sure that I'm sad or miserable or I'm frustrated and pissed off about whatever. And we put such pressure on them by just saying, well, I really just want you to be happy. Yeah. And, and I love that you had that um, in, in, that, in, in the, the section on, on how to you know, dare to parent differently. Yeah. Are there any other pieces that you, you um, help parents dare to parent differently? Well, I think um, it can feel really lonely to strike out away from the herd. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the herd, yeah. H-E-R-D, of people who are over-parenting. And they, in many communities, they're running the show, they're running the school, they're running the PTA, they're running the sports teams. And they have decided that to hover and constantly attend a child's every move is to be a loving parent. So it takes courage and Mm -hmm. guts and bravery to stray from the herd. Mm -hmm. And what I encourage parents to do, parents who are feeling that stirring within themselves, they can feel the logic of what you're saying and what Dr. Shafali says and what I'm saying. Um, but they're feeling, how do I do this? Because everyone in my town is insanely overparenting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you you got to reach out to the people you you think are like minded, and have a conversation. You know, sit down and have a coffee and and read read a book, read my book, read someone else's book, and just you know band together and form your own mm-hmm. little Tribe. posse of people yeah. who are going to re- return childhood to children mm-hmm. and take the proper distance, uh, take the proper step back, so you can have that healthy distance. From your child's existence, so you, you it's I, you don't want to go it alone. Let me put it this way: if you're trying to bring free play back into your kid's life, you know your kid's got an overscheduled life, and you realize they never play freely, you can decide on your own. Oh, my kid's going to start playing playing freely, but if there are no other kids who who are available because they're all overscheduled, who's your kid going to play with? Yeah, it really does take a concerted effort, band together with parents who are willing to say reclaim summertime for free play or, or every weekend during the mm-hmm, summer or Saturdays mm-hmm. in the summer or Friday afternoons or whatever it is like oxymoronically, you have to sort of put free play in the calendar these days because yeah. otherwise it'll, uh, it'll never happen. So, um, you don't have to go it alone. And, um, that's one thing. The other thing is I've got strategies in the back of my book for how to stand up to people who will infer or sorry, imply that you're neglecting your kid by stepping back. And so I actually have um, what I call standing up to other adults, simple scripts for complicated moments when parents are refereeing between children, when parents are chauffeuring, when parents are fetching and carrying all the forgotten things. I love parents, that. In the, right? I love it just that. Gives, I got some sample language where you can kind of speak up for yourself yeah. and your values, which are your values are basically I'm trying to step back, step up and do more for themselves um, as opposed to you know, you're just sitting there with a drink, eating bonbons, neglecting your child, which mm-hmm. is sometimes, you know, the impression the, the over parents try to, uh, to create about our approach. Mm-hmm. So 
band together with other people and then learn how to stand up for what you believe in and, and feel the joy that comes when you're like, no, you know, I'm going to, she's going to do that herself. He's going to do that himself. Yeah. Why? Because I want them to learn that skill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Of course I can do it for them. Yeah. Of course I can walk them across the street mm-hmm. for the rest of their lives, but then I'll have a 20 year old who can't cross the street Yeah. and I will have done that to them. Yeah. And Ab- I'm not going to do that to them. Yeah, absolutely. In the essence of time, I would love to to talk and talk all for much longer, but um, I think we I will we'll sign off shortly. But just to finish this amazing conversation with you, would you mind reading the last paragraph from the last chapter of your book? Uh, if sure anyone thing. has got the book, I think it's on page three hundred and five. Yeah, yeah. So this is from the conclusion to how to raise an adult. In the meantime. Despite what's wrong with the college admission system and the many, many other social and cultural factors that are beyond our control as parents, we've got children who need dinner tonight and breakfast tomorrow morning and a society and world that are depending on us to raise our children well. Join me in doing right by those children by leaving the herd of hoverers, by fostering independence, not dependence and by supporting them and being who they are, rather than telling them who and what to be. Together, we can push the parenting pendulum back in the other direction, toward raising adults. Oh, thank you, Julie. What an amazing uh, conclusion to, to this conversation. Before we finish, can you share with the listeners details of where they can find out more about you or where they can contact you if they can work with you? Because I know that many of the listeners that are reading are like, I, I want to speak to this. I need this. I need this person in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so where can they find more about you? And I'll post those in the podcast notes. Excellent. Yeah. Happy to be in touch with anybody. Um, uh, my website is the best place to start. It's julielifcotthames.com. That's my name without the hyphen.com. And there you can see all my social media links. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. And um, my email contact information is there. So that's where I would suggest you go. You can read more about my books there. Um, there are links to buying the books there. I've got a TED talk, but that's it's all on the website. So yeah. just go to the website and, and, and explore that. I have a newsletter, a periodic newsletter. I promise not to spam you. I'm only you uh, sending newsletters about once every six months. Um, so if you're interested in following me in that sense, please do. Fantastic. Thank you so, so much for joining me today in what's being a fantastic conversation and one that I feel will help parents begin to push the parenting pendulum towards raising adults. Julie, thank you so much for being with us today on the show. Thank you for having me, Louise. And thanks to all your listeners for listening. Bye for now, everyone. Thanks again for listening. And if you want to find anything more about Julie or anything I do, please do check out the podcast notes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to hop over onto iTunes and leave a review there. I'm always super grateful of reviews and uh, always appreciate your support and listening. And uh, have a great day, everyone. Thanks again. Bye for now. 
that's it for today's episode on the Parenting in the Thick of It show. If you enjoyed the show, please do share it with your friends and family. And remember, if you find yourself stuck in the thick of it and can't see a way out of it, please send me an email. I would love to help you. My email is louise at yourparentingpartner.com. And don't forget to take a look at the Parenting in the Thick of It family organizer that I created. It's an evergreen family calendar guaranteeing 12 months of use from whenever you start. It also includes beautifully illustrated, informative and interactive monthly parenting theme pages to guide you through the year. It's the perfect organizer for busy families to keep track of all their activities, plus help parents be the best parent they can be. It's more than just a calendar. You can find the link for this and the other social media platforms that I am on below the description in this episode. Thank you so much for listening today and I look forward to being with you all soon. Bye for now.